0: Welcome back to The Last Week in Medicine, it's March 3rd, 2021. Uh, I'm Stephen Jenkins and today I'm joined by a special guest, Dr. Emily Spivak. Welcome to the podcast, Emily.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) So Dr. Spivak is an infectious disease doctor and the co-director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at the University of Utah and the Salt Lake City uh, Veterans Affairs Medical Center. Uh, She did her medical school at the University of Virginia, uh, intern year at Beth Israel Deaconess, and residency and chief resident year and infectious disease fellowship training at Johns Hopkins, uh, as well as a master's in health sciences and clinical investigation. Uh, She is married with three daughters. Uh, What else should our listeners know about you?
1: Um... My husband is also an infectious diseases doctor, which I don't find that interesting, but some people think is kitschy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I will say that, you know, the Spivak power couple is a thing, you know, two very excellent star infectious disease doctors here at the University of Utah, great educators, great clinicians. So we, we love to learn from both of you. So thank you. Um, I think the med
1: students call us HEVAC and SHEVAC.
0: Oh really? <laughs> How do you feel about those names?
1: It's it's fine, whatever. I'll I don't say- know if it's, I don't know if that's like sort of age. Or pro- I mean, that is our you know gender identification, but I'm like, is that appropriate?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember when I was a med student. I think I was on like a fourth year cardiology elective, and you were like, you were like an attending at the VA on the general medicine service. And I was like, this lady's like so smart. You were there on cardiology rounds. And uh, and I was like, I didn't know who you were, but I was like, she seems to know what she's talking about. But I could never figure out what your last name was for a while if it was Sidnor or Spivak. But <laughs> I finally, I figured out, oh, this that's who we're talking about. That's Dr. Spivak. So in any case, uh, I'll say that Emily's had a huge impact at the University of Utah on antimicrobial stewardship. So um, I would say that you and, and Tristan um, kind of made stewardship hip and cool <laughs> it's, it's part of the culture now um, and I would say our, our hospitalist group takes a lot of pride I think in trying to be good stewards and I think we owe most of that to you guys because you came at us in a non-threatening way and tried to you know empower us and and just educate us more and so really appreciate that um, what else can I say You've been one of the major leaders here at the University of Utah in our pandemic response. And I know that you've worked your butt off for the last year on making sure that we have everything we need and that we're helping get patients enrolled in trials so that they can get experimental therapies and things. So thank you so much for that. Um, And I'm sure you have lots of other things to be doing today, so we can kind of jump right in. Um, But... Like I was telling you before, uh, Austin and I have wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time, and we we frequently invoke your name when we're discussing infectious disease papers and, and antibiotics, so so thanks for making the time. Thank um, you. The first question I want to ask you is, if you were hospitalized with COVID-19, what therapies would you want to receive? Is that a fair question?
1: That is a fair question. It's one I've thought about. Actually, I mean, I have to say I'm a lot less scared than I used to be at the beginning of this. I was and I'm going to throw my husband on the bus too and say he was more scared than I was. He's like, if I get sick, this can be bad. Um, (laughs) But I've thought about it. I mean, the honest answer is it depends on how long I've had it, uh, how many days of symptoms I'd had and, um, and how severely ill I was meaning, you know, maybe what unit I was on, how much oxygen I was requiring. And I'll tell you, I don't have, uh, to my knowledge, any underlying conditions that would make me at like high risk for progression to severe disease which I, you know, I don't know that I've told anyone this year, but people probably know some hospitals give remdesivir to inpatients, even if they're not on oxygen, who are at high risk to progress. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'll tell you, I mean, you know, I guess if I met our criteria at the U, which means like I was symptomatic for less than 10 days and requiring some ops oxygen, based on my experience, I don't think remdesivir is toxic or really causing side effects. So I would probably take it with the understanding that I really have no idea if it's gonna like help and modify my disease course and at most probably if it does anything would shorten the duration of symptoms a little bit.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, The thing I would say is that I probably would take steroids, although I gotta tell you I'd be So I'm like such an anti-medication person, I mean right, that's what I do in my day job. (laughs) Um, That I'd be a little bit nervous that I'd become more more manic than I am at baseline. Um, but you know if I was on more than a couple liters of oxygen, I would probably take steroids. I wouldn't let them if I got better, I wouldn't let you guys give them to me for more than a couple days, probably, but you know the ten day thing is arbitrary, you know, so if I was getting better, I'd probably push to have them stopped um other than those two things, I definitely would not take any convalescent plasma, which we'll talk about um and if I was gonna take tocilizumab, I'd probably be so sick that I wouldn't be making that decision
2: Mm, mm -hmm. Uh,
1: just based. And we'll talk about that too. That's my hunch on this one is like, I don't know. I mean, if I'm not sick, I guess, give it to me. Um, but you know, it wouldn't be like something if I was cognizant and, and not, you know, on life support that I would ask for.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, uh, definitely have thought about the same thing over the last several months and it's interesting how, you know, the more trials come out, how, uh, less certain I become and maybe more agnostic about a lot of things, especially like remdesivir. Um, Cause I, you know, I feel like when act one came out, we were all like, Oh, this looks pretty great. You know, we, we get a, re- a reduction in the duration of symptoms. Like that seems good. Maybe mortality benefit if you're on oxygen, but that's a subgroup thing. So you yeah. can put too much stock in it. And then solidarity comes out and it's like, really there was, you know, in this huge heterogeneous trial there was no you know benefit and so yeah i I think there's
1: something to to say too about like when trials are done within the pandemic i mean that's sort of partly your point but also they're different all these trials unfortunately are structured if you like look under the hood and tinker around a lot differently but i think a bigger piece of it is somewhat when they were um conducted during the pandemic and for the remdesivir piece and i've said it many times the big question is at this point, does remdesivir do it for hospitalized patients? Does remdesivir do anything to, on top of steroids? Right. Cause you know, we think by the time people get to the hospital, they're so inflamed and it's more of an inflammatory response. Uh, I think myself and many's have, many people have the hunch it probably is not adding much. And that's why in some of these later trials, there's not been a, I mean, it's different outcomes that they're looking for, but not an impact of remdesivir. So Um, My answer, yeah, would have definitely probably been different, I don't know, in three-month blocks or something, if you go back.
0: (laughs) Well, I would say that even like a couple months ago, if you asked me about tocilizumab, I would have said, heck no, not not interested in that at all. Um, But it's interesting how that's evolved. And and our listeners are probably tired of hearing about tocilizumab because we've talked about it in three previous episodes. Um, But early trial results were overall pretty disappointing. Um, But, you know, there's some newer trials that have come out that maybe show it's helpful in certain patients. So I just wanted to do kind of a quick recap on prior trials. There was the RCT-TCZ COVID-19 small trial out of Italy with 126 patients, moderate to severe COVID, no ICU patients, no effect on their primary outcome of clinical worsening. The Coromuno trial was in France, 131 patients. You had to be on at least three liters of oxygen but they excluded patients who were on high flow and non-invasive and mechanical ventilation and tocilizumab had no effect on their primary outcome either, which was clinical worsening to needing, you know, more respiratory support. Uh, The back bay trial had no effect on their primary outcome of mechanical ventilation or death within 28 days. Uh, And then came the IMPACTA trial. This was a randomized trial of 389 patients with COVID pneumonia. They also excluded patients who were on non-invasive or mechanical ventilation, so hospitalized patients on oxygen. Over 80% of these patients were also on steroids. Their primary outcome was mechanical ventilation or death within 28 days. Those who received tocilizumab were less likely to undergo mechanical ventilation or die by day 28, but there was no difference in overall mortality. Um, and so um more recently, so on February twenty-fifth, uh, the trial for Covacta, uh, the paper for that trial was published, and, and it was actually announced months ago, I think by the pharmaceutical company that Covacta was a negative study, but they finally published those results in the New England Journal. So this was a randomized trial of 438 patients with severe COVID pneumonia, uh, which basically meant they had to have infiltrates on imaging and an oxygen requirement. About 38% of them were on ventilators, so these were some, so some of them were sicker patients. And their primary outcome was clinical status at day 28 on the seven-point ordinal scale. Interestingly, only 19% of these patients got steroids. This was earlier on, I think, in the pandemic before everyone was hot on, on steroids. Um, there was no difference in the primary outcome between tocilizumab and placebo. The mortality was the same. But they did have this, you know, positive finding of time to hospital discharge was 20 days in tocilizumab versus 28 days in placebo. So that's, you know, five decent randomized trials, um, two of which were kind of sort of positive, but not super robust. But overall, I think the feeling was tocilizumab really is not panned out. But then came this REMAP-CAP trial, which I think is kind of maybe re-inflaming debate a little bit. Um, So REMAP-CAP stands for Randomized, Embedded, Multifactorial Adaptive Platform Trial for Community Acquired Pneumonia, and they're studying numerous therapies for pneumonia, including IL-6 inhibition in COVID-19, and so they published the results on that part of their study on February 25th, the same day that we got the COVACTA trial in the New England Journal. So they were looking at tocilizumab and another IL-6 receptor inhibitor, cerulumab, And unlike previous trials, this study enrolled patients only who were critically ill. So you had to be in the ICU, you had to be on either respiratory or cardiovascular organ support. And respiratory support was defined as invasive or non-invasive ventilation or high flow nasal cannula. Uh, Cardiovascular organ support was defined as vasopressors or inotropes. So the breakdown was 29% of patients were on high flow, 42% were on non-invasive ventilation and 29% were on mechanical ventilation, 19% were on vasopressors. But I think an important part of this trial was over 80% of them were also on steroids. Um, So the primary outcome in this study was was kind of a little different. It It was the number of respiratory or cardiovascular organ support free days, which is kind of a funny outcome, up to day 21. And they also used Bayesian statistical analysis, which like doesn't make any sense to me. Um, if it doesn't have a p-value, I don't know what to make of it. But, <laughs> uh, the inter- They had an interim analysis on October 28th that found that tocilizumab had met their statistical criteria for efficacy, and at that time, they had 366 patients randomized to tocilizumab, 48 to serulumab and 412 to control, which was usual care. Um, and then a subsequent analysis found that the serulumab had also met criteria for efficacy. And so, you know, that big primary outcome was, you know, fewer patients, or or I guess fewer organ support free days up to that day 21. But they also saw that there was a a difference in mortality. So it was 27% in this pooled IL-6 group versus 36% in the control group. And then when they looked at all of their secondary outcomes, the IL-6 inhibition was also better, including a 90-day survival, time to ICU, and hospital discharge and improvement in this uh who ordinal score at day 14. so kind of like a really big about face um from our previous studies i mean what did you think when you saw that emily
1: well in a distilled version of all this and i've said this before about all these therapies in general if you have to squint this hard <laughs> for, all, for for most covid therapies um Either it's not there or, or we have to point really hard to find the right patient population. And, you know, I could be concluding this wrong, but I think that's what remap cap highlights. So these people were super duper, duper sick. Um, you know, if you look at the overall mortality rates, it's like 20, the absolute difference is like 20 percentage points or 10, it's like 10, 10 to 15 higher than some of these other, I didn't mean to say 20, I meant to say like 10 percent higher points higher than just overall mortality in the groups mm-hmm. the other thing I'd point out is that if you looked and I specifically looked comparing cobacta to remap cap at the crp levels because now there's been some discussion about using a crp level to identify in addition to the sort of like need for um, respiratory or circulatory support icu and, and, and within 24 hours kind of criteria looking at a crp the, the CRP values in REMAP CAP are through the roof. They are so, so high versus if you look in Covacta and if you look at the table one or whatever it is for these studies, the units are different. So like in Covacta, it's the high, sensitive C, high sensitivity CRP. But if you like move the decimal point, you know, one to the um, left, they're not that high. The median is like 15 versus I think a median was like, I don't remember now, 50 or 70 something in REMAP. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was 100 and... In remap cap it, it 100 it was pretty high it was like around 100 maybe i have it somewhere but the point being like i i, I believe the results in remap cap um but like as the overarching all in patients with covid um i think the take-home is yeah i mean it, it's probably not going to help most people right it's going to help this if it's going to help it's going to be the sickest patients that's in a MAP cap. Maybe there's some other subtle patients who are not that sick, maybe who are on high flow or nasal cannula that it may help them get faster a little bit better and get out of the hospital a little bit better or prevent them from um, from from acquiring mechanical ventilation. But it's the you know it's the same question as the juice worth the squeeze and like how many would you have to treat to prevent that? It's like really hard to know. I think who would benefit from this aside from these really super sick. Inflamed. It seems like highly inflamed, um, immune-activated patients with remap cap. And I'll be honest with you, knock on wood, are we even seeing them anymore? I mean, in Utah, honestly, I'm like, are we so boring that we never even saw people <laughs> this sick? I mean, these people are like super, really, really sick. So, um, I yeah, that that's my take home. Is it? It's probably gonna you know help some of those people. I'm hopeful that we won't see people that sick. I don't know, over the coming months and definitely in the latter half of this year.
0: No, that's that's a that's a fair point. I mean, now that people are getting vaccinated in in much bigger quantities and and and, you know, I think most people here in in Utah, I don't know if I should say most, a lot of people have taken masking seriously, which I think also (laughs) reduces how how serious it is if you get the, the, the infection. You know, those two things, you know, we're already seeing a pretty big decline in hospitalized patients now in like you know the ICUs had a significant drop. Right.
2: So,
0: yeah, is this kind of like too late anyway? Like, are are we going to keep having these these patients? And and we'll see. I think you know now that it's you know spring is approaching, people are going to probably get more relaxed and and start you know hanging out in in droves again. And, and you know <laughs> maybe we're going to have a rebound again. I sure hope not because I'm pretty tired. Of <laughs> but but um. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I think one thing that was interesting to me was, you know, the idea with all of these studies is always like, we got to get it earlier, earlier in the, in the disease course so we can prevent this stuff from happening, right? Like, we yeah. need to prevent the cytokine storm from happening in the first place. And that was kind of the rationale with all the earlier randomized trials. Like, they were giving it to these hospitalized patients who were not that sick yet. And the hope was if we give it to them now, they won't ever get that cytokine storm and end up in the icu and this was kind of like the first study that was all critically ill patients right. they had to be really sick to get the therapy and so yeah you mentioned like pretty high mortality rate like 36 percent in the control group like that's that's really high and i mean for a critically ill population that's not unheard of and it was reduced to 27 percent if you got tocilizumab so you know, maybe counterintuitively, it was like, no, you had to wait till they were critically ill before the drug had any benefit. And so I think, you know, that's important. And for me, as a hospitalist, like, I'm not going to be giving tocilizumab to anybody. But I am wondering, like, if there's discussion with the critical care folks at the U of U or Intermountain, if they're starting to give it more based on remap cap, if that you know, I know that. Yeah, I
1: don't know like, what Intermountain is doing, yeah. and I've discussed it. You know, we've discussed it as sort of the the group that um, has edited, you know, the COVID treat, inpatient COVID treatment guideline like a million times, um, and we've talked about you know to this point outlining some pretty um, discrete criteria that it would be you know focused on this to some degree the remap cap type population. Um, But there's not been a big push for it, I think, partly because people are still like, I'm not quite sure how to use this, or, you know, the data is somewhat still conflicting. And also, honestly, because we just haven't had patients knock on wood again that have been this sick. Um, So so there's been some discussion, but not a big push to, like, implement this. I mean, you're probably aware, if I'm correct, the guidelines are also conflicting. I think NIH says there's not enough data to recommend for or against. And then IDSA, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, does recommend for it in this type of population. So, um, yeah, I, yeah <laughs> I don't know what to say about that either. Yeah, there's nuances too about some of this data to maybe think about. You know, there could be some confounding or other things, just to point to people like, sort of, when you're reading trials for REMAP CAP, right? So it's unblinded. People did get steroids. So, this whole steroid, like, LIZMAP combination thing. I'm having a hard, people are like, well, maybe it's a synergistic effect. And I'm having a hard time, I have to be honest, wrapping my head around like, well, if we didn't see an impact of immunosuppressants in all these other, you know, IL-6 inhibitor trials, why do we suddenly think it's like synergistic? Do you, do you see what I mean? Like, but again, I, that could bring up things about like, well, is it maybe actually the steroids driving most of this? And there's some, since it's unblinded, it's more, and this was done, if I'm not mistaken. I think this data was frozen or closed in November versus Covacta ended in like May or sometime in early summer. Could it be something about it's later in the pandemic? And there's the it's some markers of, of other, I don't know what that would be, but other care that has improved, you know, over the pandemic uh, and remap cap. Just things to, to think about. Versus in a lot of these other trials, steroids had not been implemented yet, which I think would point out in those populations, maybe even some of these signals of benefit for tocilizumab in the less severe, maybe we wouldn't see them. I forget all the nuances of which studies had steroids with them, with versus not, but that's something to think about. Like maybe those would be even less impressive if they if, if the patients received steroids. Um, so it just some like nuances and kind of you know confusing stuff. But Yeah. I I think if you're sick enough to be on, you know, essentially respiratory cardiac support um, Mm -hmm. and you have, you know, significant inflammation, um, it's reasonable to try a dose for sure. Um,
0: Yeah. I think, you know, after reading this one and then I don't know if you've seen the preprint for recovery that, you know, they posted that online in, in February 11th and I usually like to wait till it's like in a peer reviewed journal to really dive in and look at it but I you know I, I glanced at this you know yesterday just to kind of compare the data and you know they also found a mortality benefit and it was most pronounced in patients who were also on steroids the interesting thing about recovery was like it's a much bigger trial like remap cap I think had 800 patients mm-hmm. and recovery had 4000 4, patients you know, that they randomized to usual care or tocilizumab. And they were also very sick patients, you know, 40% of them were on non-invasive respiratory support, 14% were on mechanical ventilation, but half of them were just on oxygen. So like your typical hospitalized patient and over 80% of them were on steroids. So kind of a similar population in that regard. Um, But they had, and they had similar mortality rates, 29% for tocilizumab and 33% for usual care but if you were on steroids, your mortality was even better. It was 27% versus 33%. So it does seem like there's something with that steroid tocilizumab combo. Like, I don't know what it would be. Steroids are so broad. You're like knocking down all of your immune system. The tocilizumab is very targeted. So I don't know why, you know, how they would...
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm not an immunologist and honestly don't know enough about the sort of immune pathways to hypothesize about that either, except that it's like, the, the you know re, reflex answer is the immune system is clearly far more complicated than we think. So it may make sense that you've got to sort of attack multiple arms. I will say, correct me if I'm wrong. For recovery, didn't you have to have a CRP greater than seventy five yeah, milligrams? Maybe. for my, So so that to me, and I pulled up remap cap here. The median CRP and remap cap was a hundred and let's say one hundred thirty. Looks like for the one hundred thirty six for everybody per mill micrograms per milliliter. Um, and which is really high 75 is also really high to get Mm -hmm. into recovery so that those two trials paint the same picture to me, what you're getting at that recovery and remap cap is, I I think it's maybe they weren't as sick as far as like ICU level care goes, but I think the fact that they required a CRP greater than 75 to get in, they're selecting again, you know, when you're, you know, this, you've taken more, you've taken care of tons of COVID patients. If you just watch them all on the floor. There's a subset that get inflamed enough and sick enough to go to the ICU, and so these they're just more refining this population by either picking for like super sick in the ICU on life support, or a mixture of ICU and floor patients, but who have a significant significant amount of baseline inflammation when they come in. Yeah. So that there's a trend. I personally think in those two studies. Mm-hmm. Which is why my understanding, I think, and, and I, maybe it's IDSA, I'd have to clarify, that has, there, there is some criteria, someone that, some body guideline that says consider in people with a CRP greater than or equal to 75, it might be IDSA, I haven't looked closely enough, and I, I presume that's from the recovery data.
0: hmm What I think would be interesting, and, and, you know, if you look back at, like, influenza, you know, people frequently recommend against steroids or anti-inflammatories for influenza pneumonia and I've looked at that data before and and from what I could tell it was kind of based on you know some some meta-analyses a lot of retrospective stuff and there was like one randomized controlled trial looking at steroids in community acquired pneumonia and there was like 19 patients with influenza in that study or something like something like absurdly low that we're basing this off of. And maybe we'll never see influenza again if we can all <laughs> if
1: we keep our masks on.
0: Yeah, get used to wearing masks in the winter and not working when we're sick. Hopefully we could, you know, make influenza and RSV and all of that kinda go away. But assuming that we go back to our normal behaviors, you know, when COVID is behind us or or we get or we just, you know, are living with COVID and used to it. It would be interesting to do these similar studies for for other viral pneumonias like influenza tocilizumab dexamethasone i think you know like hopefully we won't have to use it too much longer for covid but for these other respiratory viruses i feel like there's a whole new field of research that needs to be done and and, and hopefully we have some of that infrastructure in place now with things like the recovery platform and the remap cap trial yeah.
1: The United States needs a network. I mean, we, we're so disjointed. That's a separate podcast, but (laughs) I mean, you know, people like to criticize the recovery group, but I'm like, they're putting out great data. I mean, you know, they've got a great integrated national health system that allows them to do this. And Mm -hmm we're we're clearly disjointed and it is sort of like to your point that the data is kind of coming out a little bit too late i mean that's globally because this is just moving so fast yeah i think we're also impaired somewhat by our inability to quickly coordinate and get these things up and running
0: although in the grand scheme it's like we actually flip you know put out quite a bit of scholarship in a short amount of time it's kind of remarkable that you know that we we have as many therapies as we do that have some seem to have some benefit so um not in that vein, but let's talk about convalescent plasma. Um,
2: yeah.
0: So uh, I remember there being a lot of excitement about this early on in the pandemic. Um, and, and so the idea is that patients who'd recovered from COVID-19 could donate their plasma and, and those, that plasma could be given to, to to sick patients with COVID-19. And I remember Tom Hanks donating his plasma and, and Congressman Ben McAdams from Utah donating his plasma. And, and I was like, give me some of that stuff. Um, But most of the studies have been pretty small and and most of them have shown no benefit. And then there was this one trial published uh, online in the New England Journal on January 6th, the infant COVID-19 trial that looked at giving high titer plasma to older adults over 75 with mild COVID in the outpatient setting. And it had to be within 72 hours of symptom onset. So really early. And they showed a 48% relative risk reduction in severe respiratory disease in patients who got the convalescent plasma. So that seemed kind of promising, but, you know, there wasn't like a mortality benefit in that study. Um, and then the recovery platform trial they announced on January 15th, uh, that based on data for 10,406 patients, that there was no benefit from convalescent plasma. So they were halting their trial for futility. Um, but then February 26th, there was a nice systematic review and meta-analysis published in JAMA of all the available trials uh, on convalescent plasma. So they included the four randomized controlled trials that were published in peer-reviewed journals, and then five randomized trials that were published as preprints. And then they also included results from the recovery trial, uh, which it, I think currently is still only announced in press release form. I don't know that we have a preprint for that one. But five of the trials were terminated early. Uh, two, because of futility, and three, because of slow recruitment. Uh, But in the primary analysis of the the four peer-reviewed trials, the mortality rate for convalescent plasma was like 11.6% versus 12.7%, which was not statistically different. And in the recovery trial, the reported mortality rate was 18% in convalescent plasma, 18% um, in usual care. So across all 10 randomized controlled trials that they had data for you know, the summary relative risk for all-cause mortality was one. And so, um, and, and really, you know, because the recovery trial was so big, that kind of swamped the meta-analysis as far as all the, you know, 88% of the patients were from that trial. Um, but it really seemed to show that there's not a, you know, certainly not a mortality benefit for convalescent plasma. So I wanted to ask you your thoughts on, you know, whether we should even be continuing to study convalescent plasma, or should we really try to focus on that outpatient group still? So
1: recovery trial was all inpatient, correct? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I think the data is pretty clear, in my opinion, on convalescent plasma. It has, well, I'm not going to say no role for inpatients. There is a subset of patients, and you're well aware of this because we've probably come across them together, who um, have immunodeficiencies, specifically, and abilities probably to to make antibodies. So patients who are on anti-B cell therapies or maybe have some congenital um, immunodeficiencies for. It's, those are kind of a different clinical presentation to me. A lot of those patients um, either have sort of, we've, I can't, Dr. Emily has, I think, termed it bid. They, they have sort of ongoing COVID infection or symptoms and don't clear their infection. And we think, I mean, we, there's no data to prove this. There's people around the country are doing this and hopefully it's being studied somewhere, but giving convalescent plasma in that situation, because we don't think they're having a robust immune response. They're late in disease but it's because immunologically they're impaired and can't clear it. So there may be a role for convalescent plasma in patients in that kind of population. So like rituximab, opalizumab, those types of patients. Aside from that, I personally think the data is very clear. It's been 100% consistent that there is no role for convalescent plasma in the inpatient setting. Um, and I don't think we should be giving it. Um, of course, we're probably aware. So. Uh, sort of a, you know, history, although it's only in the last year, but people are probably well aware that this started with, right, a hypothetical antiviral mechanism, because you get antibodies, that can sort of find and neutralize the virus. And there was a, I don't want to say a precedent, but based on, you know, other infections and 1918 pandemic flu, a hypothesis that this might be a treatment, and it's some case series, I believe, out of Wuhan. And then in the U.S., run out of the Mayo Clinic, the Expanded Access Program opened up, I forget now, but probably last spring, and just took off like wildfire, wildfire where we could, and we participated, in Intermountain did too, we could, you know, enroll patients, inpatient, it was pretty much any inpatient with COVID could qualify, and we entered data about them into their database, and then they, but every person in that database received convalescent plasma, but they did an analysis I forget, after several months, after like the first four or five months of that program being open around the country and compared patients who got plasma within three days of like being admitted and having diagnosis versus later and also looked at high titer versus low titer and found a signal of improved benefit if you got it within three days of diagnosis. You again, pour through that data and look at all their supplementary data. Like we figured out how to give plasma faster as time went on. And so people who got it within three days of diagnosis or later in the pandemic, we also figured a lot of other things out, right, sort of as things went on. And also, if you just look at the baseline characteristics, people who got convalescent plasma more than three days after, um, you know, diagnosis seemed to have the, the groups weren't equal. They seemed to be sicker comorbidity wise. So but that data, uh, again, this retrospective sort of comparison led to the. Um, FDA emergency use authorization for for convalescent plasma for inpatients. And I point this out, one, because it's not randomized control trial that led to an FDA EUA approval, but also because the expanded access program and the the, the authority to just give it to inpatients per FDA emergency approval, significantly impaired uh, accrual in in trials in the United States. And so a lot of these trials that stopped enrollment or had slow enrollment was because of this expanded access program in the EUA. Um, I personally think there's enough data, though, that's pretty clear, especially recovery, that it doesn't do much for inpatients. And, and based on the coming off the tocilizumab conversation, it should make sense because I, not for everybody, but the vast majority of people, when they come into the hospital, I think it's the immune system that's driving what's going on. So um, I personally think we should not be giving it outside of a few patients in, in the inpatient setting at all, and it really shouldn't be a discussion. Um, Outpatients, possibly, to your point. So that study that you quoted from the New England Journal, this was in Argentina, I believe, this infant COVID-19 group, where they gave it within 72 hours to high risk patients, right, those over the age of 75, and saw reductions in progression to severe respiratory disease. Like, I think that's a really important finding because our goal should be to prevent people from getting sick enough to go into the hospital. The issue is, and Dr. Emily, I think went through this in her grand rounds, that like to give it within 72 hours of symptom onset is like a Herculean effort. This is an infusion to people who are COVID positive, who are elderly. I think they went to a lot of long-term nursing facilities to do this. Like, is this even operationally feasible? And you know, we've been doing an outpatient convalescent plasma trial here for people who are symptomatic within seven to eight days, and even identifying like young otherwise healthy people and getting them up here fast enough to do this is hard because there's often delays in going and work because we're identifying them off of a positive test and many people wait several days before they go to get tested, but we got to go back to when their symptoms first started. Um, and then to that, on that vein, I, um, there was an NIH press release, I believe Monday or Tuesday of this week, There's another, sort Of outpatient area, or it's in the ED, but ED patients presenting with COVID 19 within seven days of symptom onset, those not sick enough to be admitted. There was a trial run out of Stanford, the C3PO trial uh, of convalescent plasma, I think, versus a multivitamin sort of infusion placebo. Um, that I don't know any of the data, but NIH announced this week that that trial has now stopped because of futility based on an interim analysis, and the data safety monitoring board recommended stopping that. So we don't know about our trial yet, which is a similar design to that C3PO. There is a DSMB meeting this Friday. Um, but I think, you know, just looking at that, that in the inpatient data and then this um, infant COVID-19, like if convalescent plasma is going to work, it's going to be really early in disease. And keep in mind that infant COVID-19 is enriched for people who are high risk for disease. You have to be more than 75 so it's not like you're going to go give it to everybody. So um, I kind of, the convalescent plasma thing, I have to say, man, we should have been doing this like way back in the beginning of it. Like, you know, again, it's harder to get outpatient trials up and running, but like studying therapies in the outpatient setting is where the money is and was at to try and prevent progression to severe disease and admission. Um, and in my opinion, that's where, the infrastructure should be set up for future pandemics or future diseases to start to evaluate some of these therapies. Did that say I agree.
0: it? Agree. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, well I yeah, think- well sorry the other thing I'll just yeah. say on
1: top of that, you know, monoclonal antibodies are kind of sort of the same thing, right? They're engineered antibodies that were derived from somebody who revived who somebody's convalescent plasma who recovered from COVID. And the data is kind of the same for them. I mean, we don't have as great clinical data because those trials, unfortunately, the primary outcome is viral shedding, which is kind of a messy yeah, outcome, which my husband good. could sort of talk to you about. But um, they've been shown to not work inpatient either. All those trials were stopped, like, I forget, Act 2 or 4 or whatever it was, stopped early for, you know, the, the Regeneron trial as well is not, you know, I think there's still a less severe inpatient COVID group still enrolling. Mm-hmm. But in severe COVID, the monoclonal antibodies in have all been stopped.
0: It's just too late at that point. I
1: think that it's too effect.
0: late. Yeah. Yeah, no. Well, that makes sense. Um, what what's your uh, predictions for Act 4? That's something we've been doing at the U of U with Baricitinib and Remdesivir versus Dexamethasone and rem, Remdesivir.
1: Right. Um So that comes on the heels of Act Two, correct? That was remdesivir on both arms with baricitinum versus placebo. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't. So I'll tell you that depends on who you ask. My impression of Act Two was that it (laughs) was not all that astounding, right? I mean, I think the way the conclusions was written was that it had a positive effect because it shortened duration of symptoms by like one day or two days or something. Yeah, Yeah. one day. and so this, but then the question is the reason it's not recommended in guidelines is clearly like in the vast majority of the world, that's not really a clinically significant, meaningful outcome
2: mm-hmm. versus
1: steroids are saving lives. So that's why the guidelines now all say like, maybe give baricitinib if you don't have steroids, but you should always be giving steroids first. So um,
2: I, do imagine I, I the suspect right. they're,
1: the groups are going to look the same. I suspect it's going to show no, no benefit like compared to
0: steroids. No benefit. Okay, yeah. I guess, do we know when those results are coming out?
1: I do not know. Yeah. Um, we're still enrolling because we enrolled somebody yesterday, so it hasn't been, um, like, like, stopped or, yeah.
0: Probably getting harder and harder to enroll people, huh?
1: Yeah, all this stuff is, like, you know, I was trying to think of a analogy of people <laughs> fighting, you know, to,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: dogs <laughs> scraping at the bones or something. I don't
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, no, thank you so much for all that insight. That's super helpful. Um, I think that's that's all I had for today. So unless you had any parting words for our listeners.
1: No, I just, I mean, people already know this, but if you compare any treatment trial for COVID to the vaccine trials, yeah. the difference is astounding, right? That's why people talk about this Johnson Johnson vaccine and like Michelin, I'm like, just don't even, stop, stop. Yeah. I would take that vaccine in a heartbeat. Like, that vaccine 100% prevents you from dying from COVID. Like, what right. else do you need to know? <laughs> and it's safe. Like, you're done. Take it. And that's um,
0: really miraculous.
1: Yeah. The vaccines, like, so I just, like, because I feel like some, it's very American of us, right? Like, I, I don't mean to, like, whatever. Like, we don't prevent things well. We don't take care of ourselves. We don't do much until, like, we get really bad. And I feel like COVID's a good example of that. We're like evaluating all these treatments at like the final hour in some ways. And and look at what happens when you do that. Like there's some benefits, but they're minimal versus (laughs) the prevention stuff. It's so much harder to do Mm -hmm. operationally and like to just convince healthy people to do things to, to prevent getting sick. But the stuff works like, yeah, masks and vaccine. I mean, again, look at our influenza rates. There's like zero in the county, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you think that's going to change public health recommendations in the future? Like, I mean, there I probably won't be, so. there won't be mask mandates, but maybe if there was enough positive social pressure, like we could keep doing masks.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I'll ever fly without one again, honestly. Um, or you know, there's some situations where you would think like, I'm, I mean, I'm not ashamed to wear one. Like, so I'll just wear them. I, I do wonder if in the hospital, will change what we do long term, right? Like, yeah. Um, you know, I don't remember all the rules, but I think we only had to wear them in influenza season if you didn't get a flu vaccine. I mean, we mm-hmm. probably continue to wear them a majority of the time. or in a lot more situations than we used to.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And the problem is, you know, th- there's obviously still debate about masks. And so as far as like community public health and schools and other public settings go, I am doubtful they'll persist because, you know, Texas, Mississippi's already reneged on them isn't the legislature today working on trying to change you know try there's let's just say there's political pressure in utah to lift mask mandates probably faster than most of us would recommend so with that kind of community political pressure outside of some of these settings i don't think they'll last unfortunately
0: yep Yep. Well, natural selection is—you know—it's—it's it's expensive. It's Live and, well and happening. Again. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's expensive to fight. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Well, thanks so much for for coming. Thank on you, Stephen. It. was fun. Like, we'll we'll yeah. talk you again sometime. You know, there's always there's always good articles coming out about antibiotics, and always like hearing your opinions on that stuff. So.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to to do it.
0: Cool. Cool. All right. Okay. We'll, we'll talk to you later.
1: Okay. Thanks. Yeah.